I'm joined by Sandhya Sriram, co-founder and CEO of Shyok Meets. Thank you so much for joining me, Sandhya. Thanks, Daniel. Uh, it's a pleasure being here, and thank you for inviting me. Why, of course, it's. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, so your your tagline at Shyok Meets is seafood reinvented, which is a really cool way to capture people's attention. Um, so how would you briefly describe Shyok Meats? So Shiok Meats is a cell-based seafood company. It's as mm-hmm. simple as it gets. So we work on crustaceans predominantly, which is shrimp, prawn, crab, lobster, as mm-hmm. we all love it. But without the animal cruelty, without um, spoiling the environment, without having to worry about antibiotics or heavy metals or microplastics. So what we essentially do is use stem cells from these animals mm-hmm. and grow the meat using stem cells. Well, wow. so what what exactly are stem cells? Stem cells has I think it's like a term that I've heard probably for maybe 10-15 years now, uh kind of a lot. What what exactly is a stem cell? So the stem cell is kind of uh, ground zero if you want to call it. It's okay. like cell number 0, uh pretty much your uh not birth cell but birth cell of every organ per se. So this stem cell is kind of it's present in every body, every organ we have stem cells in our hair in our nails in our you know in our gums skin liver heart everywhere wow. and essentially what these stem cells are in let's say a human body is they're just sitting there doing nothing uh what they do is when you get hurt for example or when your organs are degenerating due to a disease or old age these stem cells actually get activated and they start forming more of the organs tissues so they try to keep up with your body essentially so if you get a cut on your skin in a couple of days it does close yeah. and how it closes is because your immune system is working and your immune system sends signals to your stem cells to wake up literally and then start producing skin and then that's what happens in the 21 days that it takes to heal a scratch or a wound that's essentially what stem cells are they the birth cell they have this amazing capability to just sit there and do nothing but once activated they can form any organ any type of organ in in a couple of weeks wow and they are generally quiescent in the sense like i mentioned they just sit there doing nothing but as soon as you activate it a muscle stem cell will form muscle mm-hmm. a neural stem cell will form nerve uh, a skin stem cell will form skin but at the same time these stem cells have this amazing capability to go over pathways so a nerve stem cell can essentially form bone as well at some point wow so yeah so they have this amazing capability of it's called elasticity in scientific terms where they're very elastic they're very um open to forming different types of tissues um and they also have no lifespan per se to an extent I mean in higher animals like humans stem cells do degenerate as you become older so that's why you know your wound healing capability is much lower when you're right. older right like your bones don't heal faster a cut doesn't heal faster but when you go to lower animals like sea animals for example like prawns and shrimps essentially these stem cells are immortal they don't die they just mm. keep growing or they don't age at all so that's the kind of amazing biological capability that we exploit for stem cell based meats and we use these stem cells to form the meat itself so you're basically finding uh cells that can 
that are designed or not designed. These are cells that grow more cells. Um, and, uh, I'm assuming that you're, you're picking the cells that actually can create muscle because that's the part that we eat. Yeah, exactly. So in our case, we don't grow the shell, the head, the eyes or the feet and so on. What we grow is muscle. So we isolate muscle stem cells from shrimp. Mm-hmm. We put them in an environment that's very, very similar to the animal itself to trick the cells to think that they're still inside the animal. And See, essentially, I mean, it's like growing plants and fruits and vegetables in a yes. greenhouse. I saw exactly. that. I saw yeah. that graphic that you have. It's brilliant. Um, yeah. I, I just, just before we uh, we go on, I, would you mind just describing that a little further about the the greenhouse? Because I think for a lot of cell based, I've spoken to a couple of people now who do cell based, and I'm I'm the picture is starting to form in my mind about sure. how it works. When I first encountered this, actually, it was with uh, Paul Shapiro on on the podcast. Yeah. It was so shocking, um, not shocking, shocking, that um, <laughs> uh, that it was um, it was just such a different way of working. So, how what's the the way you describe it with that with the plant? Sure, fantastic. Sure. So, in a greenhouse, what we essentially do is instead of growing a plant in a field or an agricultural land where you yeah. know temperature and weather is a problem and water also is a problem, so what you do is take a cutting of a plant like we call it an explant, maybe a leaf or a stem or a root or whatever it is. And then we essentially put it in the greenhouse, which is a controlled environment in terms of temperature, pressure, humidity, light, water, nutrition, you know, whatever fertilizers or natural fertilizers or the soil that you provide is all controlled by you. Mm-hmm. And the weather has nothing to do with it. Absolutely. So yeah. it's it's completely controlled. You can do a greenhouse even in Iceland, for example. You know, literally, that's what it is. Yeah. And what happens is at the end of the couple of months or weeks or however long it takes for the plant to grow, you essentially don't um, accelerate the plant to grow. You essentially just leave it as such. Mm-hmm. You you provide them a surrounding that's very similar to the external environment. And then in the next couple of weeks or months, what you essentially get is the same fruit, vegetable, or plant that you've been eating from an agricultural land. Yeah. It's not cloning. It's not genetic modified. It's not uh, fake. It's not synthetic. It's biologically, chemically, physically the same thing that you would eat from an agricultural land. So in cell-based meats, what we do is the explant here is the stem cell. It's the stem cell, a couple of stem cells that you take from the animal. Since in shrimps and crabs and lobsters, these stem cells are immortal. We don't have to keep going back to the animal again and again. So essentially, if we freeze down the stem cells, they just stay there without doing anything Uh and they don't die. But when you put these stem cells in the nutrient-rich environment and the right temperature, they start growing. So essentially, that's what it is. So you put them in this controlled environment, you provide them nutrients like amino acids, proteins, carbohydrates, vitamins, what very similar to what the animal would eat. Um, And then in a couple of weeks, what you get is the muscle stem cells forming muscle cells, forming muscle fibers, and a collection of your muscle fibers is actually the meat itself. So it's very, very similar to a greenhouse, just that you're using cells instead of an explant. You're using a fancy uh, pressure cooker, which we call a bioreactor, instead of, you know, that hot and humid uh, glass chamber, which you use in a greenhouse. And at the end of the day, it's biologically, chemically, physically, nutritionally, exactly the same as you would get from a dead animal, mm. minus the antibiotics, heavy metals, microplastics, 
pathogens and all of it. So nutritionally, actually, it might even be better. Yes, exactly. Because the lack of overuse of antibiotics, the lack of antibiotic accumulation actually means that your proteins won't get degraded inside of the animal or inside of the meats. So yes, essentially, we are actually getting a more nutritious form. Uh, but this is theoretical at this stage. So for us specifically, we are still in the midst of doing nutritional analysis. Mm-hmm. But a lot of other companies like us who are working on beef, pork, chicken, for example, have done some initial studies and found out that these meats actually have larger amounts of protein compared to the other, you know, a piece of chicken that's come from a dead animal, for example. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. What I, what I found out as I was doing a little bit of research on this is the, I mean, I mean, you mentioned some of these, the uh, antibiotics, the, the, the microplastics. So what, what is the problem that you're solving with shock meats? There's a, there's a lot of issues surrounding sure. this. So all of us have seen enough YouTube videos and, you know, enough yeah. links on slaughterhouses and how these animals are being, you know, abused uh, by humans and, you know, and, so unethical and so on. Yeah. Not a lot of light has been thrown on sea animals, for example, or the seafood industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a couple of years ago, one of the largest uh, news webs, uh, news um, uh, outlets actually covered a huge story on the shrimp industry. So they essentially went around shrimp farms in Thailand and Vietnam and China, which is kind of the most largest producers of shrimp in the world. And they found out that most of the shrimps are grown in sewage water literally sewage water. And the reason for this is shrimps are actually bottom feeders. So in the ocean, they are in the bottom of the ocean. They feed on other dead animals, dead plants. That's the source of nutrition in the ocean. It's an important job too. They're basically cleaning everything up and filtering. Exactly. exactly. It's part of the entire, you know, food chain of sorts. But given that these shrimp farmers exploit it and they essentially feed and grow them in sewage water, because then they don't have to spend money on water and feed, essentially. Oh, God. Yes, shrimps thrive in sewage water. They love it because they are bottom feeders. They love dirt. That's, you know, dirt or dead animals, dead plants, decomposed tissues is what they feed on. But essentially, that is not what you're supposed to be growing them in. So that's exactly what it is. And I have firsthand experience of visiting these farms. So I have literally seen it with my own two eyes. And I'm a vegetarian all my life. And I was appalled, disgusted by this entire industry. But that's essentially what it is. And since they're grown in sewage water, they're taken out. And then they're cleaned in bleach. And then they're cleaned with antibiotics. Because these shrimps, when they come out, they're literally black and oily and dirty, right? So you have to clean them. You have to get them ready to be consumed by people. So essentially, there's huge vats of bleach huge vats of antibiotics and then they're cleaned and then this vat of antibiotic that has cleaned the shrimp is then dumped into the soil or the river behind the shrimp farm so now you can understand why antibiotic resistance is happening this this is one of the reasons again so it's not only affecting the shrimp industry it's affecting every other industry down the line wow yeah, I and, don't think I'm ever eating shrimp again <laughs> until until shiok meats is ready. I'm never eating. I've shrimp heard again. this from a lot of people once <laughs> I've started explaining about the shrimp industry, so it's been interesting. But yeah, this is only some of the problems. You know, the other problem is if you have to set up a shrimp farm, it has to be near a water body. So then they have to clear out mangroves. By clearing out mangroves, you're killing biodiversity. You're de- you know doing deforestation, and mangroves are actually natural barriers to floods. So if you take off mangroves, there's 
you know, water coming into the cities and towns leading to flooding. It's right. not only natural disasters that are leading to it. It is actually human, uh, you know, human intervention in all of this. Yeah, direct. The next, is, the next is you might think, okay, this is shrimp farm shrimp. So let's look at wild caught shrimp. They might be much better because they're from the ocean. But that's where, you know, your microplastic accumulation, heavy metal accumulation, and remember the antibiotics that were used in the vats, they are put into the rivers, the rivers go into the seas, they mm. go into the lakes, and that's again accumulation of antibiotics. The other thing is shrimps are extremely small animals. So generally how the shrimp farm, uh, sorry, the shrimp, uh, the fishermen catch it is using these lo- large trawlers at the, the back of their boats. So these huge nets essentially that catch all of these animals. Um, Shrimp farming has a bycatch that's the largest in the industry. It has a 1 is to 20 bycatch. So one kilogram of shrimp leads to 20 kilograms of other sea animals and plants being killed off, which is the largest ratio in this entire seafood industry. So given all these numbers, this industry is still one of the largest. It's a $40 billion industry globally. Uh, People from all over the world eat crustaceans. Um, so it is a huge industry that needs disruption, uh, that's crying for disruption, literally, you know, yeah. for the last couple of years. And we just said, let's try to tackle this, see if our technology works and let's kind of move forward and see where, where it goes. Yeah, well, that's, uh, certainly explains why starting with the crustacean, uh, yeah. uh, path and some of these things you said, obviously, I, I mean, it, it, they're absolutely shocking. Um, another thing you mentioned about removing the the mangroves um there is um i I was reading that uh basically when you remove the mangroves it's actually um uh what i read was that and i'm I'm just going to quote some one of the articles it says that a kilo of farm shrimp was is responsible for almost four times the greenhouse gas emissions of a kilo of beef yes it is true but there's not been very Uh, good scientific research on it. So these are arbitrary numbers or rather projections. It has not been proven yet. Um, So as of now, given the scientific proof that we have, it looks like beef is the largest, uh, you know, contributor of greenhouse gases. But like I mentioned, not much research or not much light has been thrown on the seafood industry. And slowly these numbers are coming up, studies are being done. Um, also, another big problem that we are facing currently right now, right this time, along with the COVID in humans, is actually this huge viral disease in the shrimps. So this is called a white spot disease that's mm-hmm. caused by a virus. And essentially, it wipes out hundreds and thousands of farms. And that's exactly what's happened in Guangdu province in China. This kind of pandemic among shrimps occurs every couple of years. And that leads to anywhere between 100 and 500 farms being closed down completely. And that's leading to a lot of economic instability, shrimp farmers losing, you know, their daily wages and whatever they're doing. So it is a huge problem. There is no treatment for this viral disease. There is no drug out there. Um, So all of these shrimp farmers, when, you know, they listen about our technology, they're very excited about it and they want to know whether they can adapt it at some point Um, because it's such a novel technology for the small shrimp farmers to understand, but the big shrimp producers, the big companies that do it in the multi-tons per month Mm -hmm. are really interested in listening to the technology and seeing if they can apply it in the long term. And that's exactly what we want to do as well. We don't want shrimp farmers to go out of business. 
what we're telling them is here's a new technology you guys know how to grow shrimp or rather how to sell shrimp how to distribute it how to sell it how to market it here's a different way of doing it without killing animals without harming the environment without harming human health per se so you you want to actually give your technology to these farmers yes we want to license our technology in the next 5 to 10 years it's not something that will happen immediately uh we as a company are getting into the manufacturing phase where we are setting up our own manufacturing plant producing our own shrimp meat but honestly if we want to hit the 40 billion dollar industry in mm-hmm. the next 10 years there's no way a company like me only can do it yeah. so i want to work with the existing food producers existing shrimp producers to get this technology to a larger scale to reach the mass uh you know mass population that's out there so happy to license it happy to work with them uh like i said we are great with the technology they are great with distribution so why not partner together to get this thing done yeah absolutely i was um i had uh, lou cooperhouse of blue nalu yes. on yes. on and he was saying that it, what he envisions is basically setting up these factories or breweries essentially as he calls them yes. uh, just around the country that way you know you can set them up near large cities so instead of needing to import uh fish yes. or like you know all the way from asia into new york you just drive it down maybe 50 miles and uh, so is that how do you envision exactly i mean i don't get the point if you're running a cell based meat company and calling it sustainable if you're producing it in singapore and shipping it all over to the us for right. example then it's not sustainable anymore so for us since our initial target market is southeast asia east asia kind of landscape geography we are looking at setting up multiple manufacturing plants within different countries around um south asia to mm-hmm. start off with so we're looking at singapore malaysia thailand um hong kong even though it's a little bit on the north but it's a better effluent population that eats a lot of crustaceans and then we're looking at australia and india on the east and the west so essentially for us it it is about building a sustainable business in all angles just not only on the technology but making sure we aren't flying the product you know thousands of miles away and then calling it a sustainable product it is not yeah. honestly <laughs> so our idea is to set up multiple manufacturing plants but at the same time like i mentioned impossible or rather it's too much for a company like us of our scale to set it up all on our own mm-hmm. so the best is to partner up with existing food companies or shrimp producers in different countries around asia especially given the demographics is very different between different countries the way you market the way you distribute the local yeah. languages are different for example mm. so given all of that diversity we said let's partner up with companies rather than you know doing it all on our own yeah i mean it makes sense in that way you you don't really need to worry about the marketing part they know how to like you said they know how to do that just let them do the thing that exactly. they're good at and you provide them with exactly. the tech exactly yeah uh you mentioned at the beginning that you're um you're not going to be growing the shell or the feet or the eyes or anything uh at least that I'm from the US and so one thing that we love is like popcorn shrimp although I'm I'm not yes. a big fan of that um but it always comes with a tail. Yes. So is that something that you you plan to do because I think there's a part of that where um you know it's part of the eating experience. Yes. So that is a definitely a very western thing. Okay. Good <laughs> <So> to know. <laughs> in 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 Asia a lot of our crustaceans are actually eaten in the minced form. Okay. Uh, so 25% of our market is minced crustacean so it can be used in dumplings shrimp balls 
lobster rolls, for example, and so on. Uh, the rest of the 75 is uh, structured shrimp, but it doesn't have to be with the shell, for example. Yes, eating with the shell, with the tail is a delicacy, but I think the way we eat has to change and we are changing it, yeah. first thing. The second thing is making a tail or part of that is not going to be an issue. But at the end of the day, is it really, really necessary is the yeah. question because that adds cost to the technology as well, cost to the product as well. Third thing is how nutritious is it? Actually, the tail has no nutrition or the yeah, part of the it tail. Away. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the fourth thing is we can definitely 3D print it. We can make it out of plants. Uh, we're looking, I mean, at this point, we'll, our products are minced shrimp at this point, but we are looking at a structured product, uh, essentially looking like a de-shell shrimp. But if you want us to add a tail on with a plant-based component, then we can easily do that. So it's, it's not impossible, but I think the question is, is it actually necessary yeah. uh, for us to put our efforts into it? Yeah. And also, is it a priority? It seems exactly. like a, very much of a nice to have if you're looking at a product roadmap. It's um, exactly feature request for kind of further down yes. the line. Yes. Uh, but yeah, that's really interesting. And so at what, what point in time will you be shifting from shrimp to the other crustaceans? So we actually just started research about, I mean, when COVID started, literally, we started yeah. work on lobster. And uh, in the next couple of months, we'll actually start work on crab. So we are in the midst of kind of obtaining the best stem cell lines, making sure that we have enough banked for us. And uh, hopefully in the next couple of months, we should have our first lobster prototype. So we're very oh, wow. excited about it. Yeah. And what's the, um, I mean, we've been talking about the in intensity of the shrimp industry. How does it yes. look for crab and lobster? So most crabs and lobsters cannot be farmed. So most of them are ocean caught. Um, that's why they're more expensive. For example, uh, okay. like a lobster can go up to $500 a kilogram in China. That's wow. how much people are willing to pay. And these lobsters are essentially grown uh, in the deep oceans of Australia and then shipped over live to China uh, because that is a big delicacy in China. And it's also a kind of a stat status symbol. Uh, you know, it's used at weddings and banquets and so on. Um, yeah, so... Um, the problem with these animals is because they cannot be farmed. They have to be, you know, caught in the ocean. Mm -hmm. um, it's completely unsustainable. We are fishing too much. There's only so very little left. A lot of the different types of species have actually been endangered or completely wiped off. Uh, for example, mud crabs are coming to a place where we won't have mud crabs in the next three to five years wow. anymore. They're coming to that. Uh, we are not allowing enough time for them to breed. That's the whole problem. We are catching them too early. Um, so that's the whole problem. So it's, it's more of a, a wild caught situation with lobster and crab and essentially needs a lot more disruption on mm. that side of things. Yeah. goes back to your earlier point about the fact that just because um, about the, the farming versus wild caught, yes. uh, there's a negative side to, to the wild caught as well. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. And so in terms of like how you see uh, the industry and, and, because your disruptionism is something that we're seeing a lot of, especially, and that's a word that we're seeing a lot of, um, especially coming out of Silicon Valley. So do you see uh, shiok meats and, and this kind of cell-based, um, just meats in general, completely mm -hmm. replacing the standard industry? Um, I'm being very optimistic here and very realistic. I don't think it can replace the entire industry, uh, not at least for the next 10 years, mm -hmm. given the growth and the way that we are going and, I mean, the positive trend that we're seeing, 
it has to be a mix of plant-based and cell-based meats that's going to take over the meat industry, meat and seafood industry. Um, you know, even though I run and own a cell-based company, like I mentioned, I'm be being very realistic in terms of numbers and progress that we can make. Um, I would see, like, if you walk into a supermarket in about five to seven years' time, you'll you'll see more options of plant-based and cell-based seafood and meats rather than the real or the you know the the meats that got that's gotten from a slaughter farm per se. So that actually gives you more choices and more options to choose the right thing. Yeah. Um, what we foresee in about fifteen to twenty years' time, especially for our children, for example, is that they would essentially go into the supermarket and want to buy only these products and the actual meats will become such a premium price product that you would buy it probably once a year or once in a month for example so this would become more of the norm and the actual meats would become so highly priced that you have to have an occasion to buy it for example that's really interesting i wonder i mean I since you're, I mean, we're, we were talking about greenhouses and all of that, like you said, a greenhouse, um, just to, for simplicity, you can put the perfect uh, environment for a tomato to grow, for instance. Yes. And you would think that because of that, to a certain degree, it would have a flavor that's much better yes. than the standard one, because, you know, a standard tomato growing in the field, there could be maybe just yes. not enough rainfall or whatever the case may be. So you would think similarly that cell-based meats, because they're grown in the perfect environment, they don't have any plastic, all these wonderful things you've yes. mentioned, actually the flavor would be better as well. Yes, exactly. So the good thing about cell-based meats is you don't have to manipulate flavor. Uh, but in plant-based meats, for example, you have to. You have right. to. I mean, essentially you're taking plants and make them feel, look like and taste like meat. Yeah. So you have to do some sort of a processing there. But the good thing with cell-based meats is the taste is inherent. It's also in the nutritional solution that you feed them. For example, if you take a if you take shrimp that go, grows in the ocean, they essentially feed on algae and seaweed and mm -hmm. you know plants there. So the nutrient solution that we feed our shrimp cells also have an extract from algae to provide that seafoody flavor. You know, literally that you know the flavor of the sea. But the inherent umami flavor or the sweetness of the shrimp or the moistness or the taste of the shrimp comes from the cells themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting you brought up that point because, yes, cell-based meats actually have a concentrated flavor that we humans are not used to so much because we have been uh. eating adulterated seafood and meats, literally. Um, so it is very intense. It is, I would say, at least 2x what you would expect from a shrimp. Um, so that actually gives us more room to play around with the product in terms of looking at plant and cell-based blends, for example. Uh, if that's an option, if people are looking at, you know, having a texture from a plant-based seafood, but the taste from a cell-based seafood, then we can look at that blend as well. Wow. Yeah, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. I was, um, I've noticed sometimes when you when you eat shrimp, not that I'm ever going to do this again, um, <laughs> but when I've eaten shrimp in the past, sometimes the flavor is very mild almost. It's almost watery. Yes, yes, and, exactly. Uh, oh, that is because I didn't mention one more thing, and oh. I think you will never eat shrimp again, but a <laughs> lot of the shrimps are actually injected with gelatin or steroids to make them look bigger. Because like I mentioned, we aren't allowing these animals enough time to breed. We We are having so much demand that the smaller shrimps are actually individually taken and injected with gelatin to make them look bigger. Wow. So, so why the taste is diluted is because of that gelatin, actually. 
so you don't get the shrimpy taste anymore and it's just some random gel that's there that's mm. being injected into the animal that make yeah. you know now that you're saying it it makes absolute sense because i have eaten shrimp in the past and i just think this doesn't i don't i just can't imagine that an animal would be like this weird yeah. it's almost crunchy yes. and uh kind of at the same time squishy yes mm. yeah <laughs> Not so much. Um, so I, I'm, I'm really curious to know, aside from COVID times where things are a little different, what's a, what does a day look like for you and the team right now? So for me, my day is crazy. I mean, I do everything from fundraising to running a team to managing to talking about the technology because I do understand the R&D and the stem cells and the actual science mm-hmm. behind it. I do like to listen to it. I like transferring my knowledge that I've you know got in the last decade working on stem cells. Um, I do a lot of troubleshooting as well. Um, I don't have time to sit in the lab as much as I really like to, but honestly, I just don't. But for the team, for the scientific team, which is about 80% of our team currently, um, it's basically going in, growing stem cells, making sure they're growing fine, getting the best stem cell lines, freezing down enough tubes of stem cells for the foreseeable future so that we don't have to go back to the animal ever again basically expanding these lines. That's on the most of the stem cell team. And then we have another team called the manufacturing or the bioreactor team, basically converting these stem cells into meat, uh, putting them in a bioreactor, making sure we're getting the parameters right. We're getting all the, we're writing down everything so that we can scale up to a thousand liter scale, because right now we're doing it at a two liter, five liter, 10 liter scale. Mm -hmm. But eventually when you go into manufacturing, you have to go a hundred times of that, even thousand times of that. So it's a lot of math. It's a lot of engineering, physics, chemistry, and a lot of biology. And then we have another team of scientists who are essentially working on reducing the price. So how do you kind of tie in the stem cell side and the manufacturing side making sure that the product is eventually going to be affordable by the mass population. Mm-hmm. So they work a lot on what kind of ingredients do we feed these cells? Uh, because right now, most of the ingredients that we feed these cells are produced only by pharmaceutical companies. So they are extremely expensive given the market price because right. it's used for healthcare. So they are trying to see if they can swap out these pharmaceutical ingredients with plant-based ingredients or feed-grade, mm-hmm. food-grade ingredients that are completely edible. So then you don't have to worry about, oh my God, am I eating a chemical? What is a chemical going to do to me? What are the long-term effects of this pharmaceutical agent? So that's essentially what that team does. So essentially it's a lot, I mean, the good thing about my entire team is all of us are so passionate about food. Yeah, And interestingly, not all of us are vegans or vegetarians. There are people on my team who still eat meat and so on, but they're looking to use their knowledge, their skill to work on a product that eventually will make them stop eating meat in that sense, or make them stop eating meat that comes from, you know, animals. Yeah. How can they work on that? So it's a very interesting mix of a team that I have that completely believes in the ultimate mission but believes also that it's impossible for every every human being on this earth to become vegan or vegetarian. And I don't think that's possible at all. Mm-hmm. That's why cell-based meat still gives you that option of eating meat, the same meat, except that you don't kill animals. Yeah, yeah. it really is. Uh, uh, have your animal and eat it too. Exactly. Uh, yeah, that's, that's very interesting. In terms of this price reduction, I, where... Yes. So during the R uh, the R and D phase, um, yes. 
I'm assuming things are much more expensive than when you are able to scale up. So what what's the pricing, I suppose, now and where are you aiming for it to be? Sure. So given, I mean, we had our first prawn uh, shrimp uh, dumpling launch around March, April last year. And at that point, it costed us about $5,000 per kilogram. Um, so a couple of dumplings cost a couple of hundred dollars, you know, so that was what it is. From there, we have come down to about $3,500 currently, okay. which itself is a huge jump, but it's still not affordable. So in the next eight to 10 months, we are actually bringing down the cost to about $50 a kilogram. Wow. And how we're doing this is, like I mentioned, swapping out ingredients with plant-based that's in-house, but we've actually partnered up with the with two of the biggest, uh, one of the biggest pharmaceutical industries in the world to actually make this happen for us. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we're also partnering up with another company that has a proprietary technology um, to kind of negate out external additions of any proteins. Because the protein is the most expensive component in this nutritional solution that we feed these cells. Um, There is a way of producing it by the cells themselves because inside of an animal's body, nobody's really feeding it per se, other than the food it eats. But a lot of the secretory factors is from the cells themselves. So this company has a technology to, you know, capture that secretory factor that the cells have and make the cells grow with that factor itself. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Um, What is the value or the importance of doing uh, R&D right now while setting up the manufacturing and doing that uh, at parallel? Right. So to set up a manufacturing plant, it takes about 12 to 18 months, you know, from the time you start a floor plan. I mean, first of all, obtain the funding, then do the floor plan, put in the equipment orders. All of these equipments are made to order, um, customized in some instances. So they do take a couple of months to be made and shipped over to you. Um, So given the timeline of 12 to 18 months, we are looking at we are sure that our product will be at a price point of $50 per kilogram, which is com- which we can commercialize with by the next eight to 10 months. So given that's the timeline, we have to start setting up our manufacturing plant parallelly so that when the price point is low and we've scaled up the technology, the manufacturing plant is basically ready. Mm-hmm. And then you can go into commercialization. Another aspect is that we cannot commercialize without getting food regulatory approval. Like, for example, in the U.S., it's the FDA and the USDA. In Singapore, it's the SFA, which is the Singapore Food Agency, which is kind of the equivalent of FDA. So for them to approve our product and let us sell in the markets, we have to produce the product a minimum of three times in a manufacturing facility. I see. So it's kind of a literally a chicken and egg situation where I have to set up a manufacturing plant to get my regulatory approval. And without regulatory approval, I can't get into commercialization. So yeah, that's what it is. So we have to run both parallelly. I mean, is there ever a risk of, um, as you're still doing the research and development, you're probably finding ways of making things more effective and efficient and you're setting up this plant, which clearly takes a while. Is there ever, is there any sort of fear where you're thinking, um, I need to set up, you know, we have this floor plan, here's the thing, we're going to do it this way. And then what, you know, in six months time, you come up with a, with a completely new way that's, um, That's very unlikely to happen in the sense that in the lab, we already have a process in place that has worked for us. Oh, I see. So given the inputs from that and also the various learnings that we have from the pharmaceutical industry in terms of producing drugs and biologics and vaccines, 
that's where you know large scale bioreactors are used and those are the kind of manufacturing facilities that we will be setting up but at the food grade level not at the drug or the right. human therapy level so given all of these learnings and for example the engineering firms that we hire also are the ones that have set up other manu- uh, you know pharmaceutical plants previously so they kind of understand the industry also a lot of learnings that we have gained from the dairy industry the chocolate industry the mm. beer industry you know in terms of brewing and setting up large scale bioreactors and fermenters putting all of this together is how we are uh, setting up our manufacturing plant so one thing is where um, we have to kind of fit our r&d manufacture uh, r&d scale process into a manufacturing facility rather than trying to do the other way around where we have to revamp the manufacturing facility so what we'd rather do is set up a highly sophisticated well catered to manufacturing facility and then get our r&d to fit into that uh, process is the better way to go rather than the other way around yeah that makes that makes a lot of sense actually yeah uh, if there is ways of doing it that are already well known and established then you may as yes. well fit the way you you create the product uh, exactly yeah so you you're saying that right now you're you're doing a lot of um freezing of stem cells are you basically like are are you ever at any point in time just you create a product and then have to eat it all and then create a product <laughs> have to eat it all no so our meats do have an expiry date for example so the stem cells so what we essentially do is we don't keep converting into meats and freezing them down because like i mentioned they do have an expiry date they do get spoiled so what we do is actually bank and freeze only the stem cells and at any point that we need the meat we take it out and then do the process in the bioreactor takes about 4 to 6 weeks to get the meat mm-hmm. so whatever meat we are producing right now is either being used for prototyping you know food science food scientists that want to do some texture analysis moisture analysis on it or taste analysis at the same time we have to send it out for a lot of testings like nutritional analysis um all of all of that that the regulators require we also want to understand a lot of the chemical makeup of this product mm-hmm. com- in com- in comparison to the actual meat so we want to do that as well so at this point i would say we have a lot more analysis to do than the amount of meat that we are making so it's not like we have an excess of meat that uh, yeah. we have to just eat it yeah <laughs> <laughs> Well, it sounds like a, a fun problem to have um, at some point, uh, making yeah. a lot of dumplings. So it's, it sounds like it's also really good. Um, it's really good practice if you're freezing the stem cells, then you have to make meat. That's actually the the process that eventually exactly you'll be doing. exactly. So yeah. it's a good practice. How did you pick the very first shrimp from which you extracted the stem stem cell? It, it seems like, at least in my mind, I would I would think I it, this needs to be the perfect shrimp because we're going to be creating yeah. everything from it. Yeah so I would say we were blessed enough to find one of the clean one of the cleaner shrimp farms in Singapore uh, where they essentially definitely do not grow shrimps in sewage <laughs> water they don't use as much antibiotics minimal a- levels of antibiotics are always used um in any type of farming mm-hmm. um so uh, this is a shrimp farm that has been you know vouched by the Singapore government as well so we actually went up to them and we said listen you know what we want to get a couple of shrimps to basically do some research and they said yeah well just buy it from us and that's literally what it is so we have gone back to that source over and over again to get our stem cells and i must say that we're very happy uh with the way they're doing it um w- like i mentioned one of the 
shrimp farms that I would eat shrimp from if I would eat seafood, for example. Uh, but yeah, so we source it from, so it's very important as to which farm, uh, which type of animal we are choosing. It's very, very important. So yep. that's why it's taken us a couple of months to get to a point where we are comfortable getting a lobster and a crab source. Um, it's not easy to get, and these animals have to be live for us to isolate the stem cells. Mm. So it's not very easy to get fresh sources of lobster and crab in Singapore. But uh, we did partner up with a couple of uh, local academic institutes and also the Marine Institute, for example, here uh, to get our sources. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that, that seems like the, the most important part is the shrimp that you'll be getting everything from and making yes. everything. And so yes. be, beyond, uh, we kind of t- talked about the future already, but I, I suppose in, in a little more detail, I guess, uh, beyond shrimp and crab and lobster, uh, you know, what, maybe if we fast forward like 10 or even 20 years, what does, what does food look like to you? For me, food, I think in the next 20 years is going to be, I mean, vegetarian will be vegetarian still, but I think for the meat eaters, it's going to be a a mix of plant and cell-based products, maybe even insect-based. I do see that insect-based is coming up a lot uh, recently, especially in Asia, uh, even in Europe as much. Uh, But I think it's going to be a mix of plant-based and cell-based predominantly. And where, like I mentioned, that's what people are going to go for firsthand. Uh, But yeah, given a very special occasion, if there is still these slaughter farms and shrimp farms that are happening at that point, then that would be so premiumly priced that you would rarely buy it. Yeah. Wow. So I mean, that's um, that's a pretty quick disruption, I would say, for such uh, a crucial industry. I mean, food is one of those industries that will never go away. Obviously. Yeah. Uh, so a twenty-year timeline, in my mind, seems pretty quick to get to that to that point. I mean, given the recent plant-based kind of disruption that's happened, I mean, see, mock meat and plant-based meats have been in Asian diets at least for the last 100, 200 years. Mm. But what Beyond and Impossible and all the other plant-based meat companies have done, it made the product really sexy, made it marketable, made it um, sexy enough for you to go buy it and be excited about it. That's true. Um, And also what they've done is concentrated a lot on the flavor and the texture because generally mock meat doesn't have much flavor per se. Mm -hmm. Like the Asian mock meat has a very bad aftertaste of soy or pea or whatever it is. But these products have concentrated a lot on the flavor and eventually concentrating a lot on nutrition uh, in the next couple of years. So that's how the industry has disrupted. And you can see that the, you know, the, the graph for, uh, plant-based meat has literally gone up this way and it's not plateauing it's actually growing a lot more wow. given the COVID situation right now uh, based on reports that I've been reading so I think that's where the cell-based meat industry also right now we are kind of here like growing steadily getting to a point but I think once we commercialize it's the graph is going to go straight up and I don't think it will come down so honestly this entire alternative protein industry is not a fad and it's not a good it's not a good to have, it's a need to have. Mm. And it's an actual fact that consumers are thinking about. And especially Generation Z, which is the future generation, you know, our kids and their kids and so on, yeah. are the ones who are going to be eating this a lot more than you and me rather. Um, so that's where I see the growth is. I don't think it's too fast. I actually think it's a little bit too slow. It should be faster. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but given that it is a technology that needs a lot of support from ancillary industries, 
it will take a while for all of us to get to a point where we can disrupt it at the mass scale mm. rather than just having it as an extra product on the shelf, for example. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And what, what would you say is uh, currently the, the biggest challenge, I suppose, for, for you or and maybe for the other cell-based meat companies? I think it's the scale. I think price-wise, a lot of our company. I mean, if you'd asked me this question about six, eight months back, I would have definitely said price and cost. But uh, given the progress that we have made and the progress that the other cell-based meat companies are making, I think we have kind of solved the price issue. It's Mm -hmm. just a matter of time for us to reduce the price. But I think what keeps me up at night or the biggest challenge per se is the scale. If you're looking at a $40 billion industry and to disrupt it, you're talking about you know, tons with multiple zeros that I can't even count them in terms of the quantity of the meats or the seafood. So when are we going to reach that scale is what, you know, keeps me up at night. How fast can we grow? How can we scale it up so fast that let's say we can take 25% of the industry or 50% of the industry? I think that's what the biggest challenge is. But at the same time, the challenge can be easily solved by all of the ancillary industries coming together. So right from the equipments to, you know, the engineering to the food companies believing in us and taking a considerable stake in us, investing in us, helping us set up manufacturing, scale it up, because they have done it. They have done it successfully for their own businesses. Yeah, of course. Yeah. They just have to do it for this new technology. So if all of this comes together, I think the 10-year timeline that we're talking about can be reduced to seven, even five years time. Wow. So in 2025, we could be seeing potentially a lot of uh, these products Yeah, so actually most of the cell-based meat companies are predicting anywhere between 2022 and 2024 for their launches, depending on when they set up and when they started. So I think the boom of the cell-based meat industry is not very far away. Uh, The first few products are going to be launched in the next less than two years away, for sure. I mean, we are aiming for early 2022. Um, So given that, I'm sure at least three or four of the products will be launched in 2022. And then another 10, maybe next year after that. Wow. And then a bit more after that. Yeah. And so when, when you do launch them, where will, they, where will they start being sold? Yeah, the first one is Singapore, uh, because that's where we're getting our regulatory approvals and setting up our plant. Uh, so we're looking at, we've already partnered up with a couple of local premium restaurants um, and international chains as well. So we're looking, to, I mean, we are doing some prototyping with them, but looking to launch with them. These are the restaurants that launched Impossible and Beyond and Omni Pork in the past. So they're definitely for sustainable food options and they really support and believe in the mission. Um, so that's where we're heading towards. Yeah. Do you work with chefs when you, after you create something, do you, do you share the meat with um with the chef so that they can actually give their insight on it? Yes. So actually all our dishes or prototypes have been made by the chefs. So we don't cook okay. it ourselves. We actually get them to make it for us. Um, for example, our first prototype was made by one of um, Singapore's best culinary dumpling chefs. Wow. Um, she's actually a tutor at one of the culinary schools. And she basically made the first set of dumplings for us. So we love working with them. We love seeing how excited they get when they are frying it or steaming it. And they're like, hey, it looks like the real thing. I mean, there's no difference. And I'm like, yeah, well, it's not meant to have any difference. It is the real thing. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. (laughs) That's so cool. That must be so exciting to see that they're excited about 
yeah. all your hard work. Um, a fun question that I like to ask is, who is your sustainability hero? Interesting. Um, at this point, what comes to mind for me is, I think, Ryan Bethencourt. Um, I don't know if you've heard I'm of not, him, but I'm not familiar, okay. No. So he used to run IndieBio, the biotech accelerator in San Francisco, and then he was he was kind of the first investor into Memphis Meats, Finless okay. Foods, Clara Foods, all of them, and. He's been a great f- friend and mentor to me for the last couple of years. First investor in Shiok Meats. Um, okay. So I mean, angel investor. And right now he runs a company called Wild Earth that does vegan pet food. Um, because most it, yeah. of the pet food comes from really horrible parts of the meat industry. Mm. So he actually came up uh, with this company um, that's actually funded by Mark Cuban. Oh, wow. And yeah, he was on Shark Tank. Oh, cool. <laughs> so he, he got a sh- deal on Shark Tank. And I think he is my sustainability hero because all we talk about is, you know, disruption and sustainability and how do we kind of work with food and get that product to the market. And I have a call with him, you know, at random hours and we <laughs> kind of are brainstorming all the time on the products and the innovation. So yeah, it's Ryan Beth and Kurt for me. Uh, that's awesome. I'm sure he would, he would be thrilled to hear that. That's um, I think it's really cool to have someone who... Uh, is doing something similar and, yeah. uh, you know, and have that kind of mentorship and someone who's really interested and, and, yes. and can provide you that much feedback. That's really cool. Yes. Yeah. And, and for people who are interested in learning more about Shiok Meats and, uh, and what it means, the word Shiok, which we, we haven't talked about, but um, where, where can people go to, to actually learn about everything that you're doing and get updates? Sure, our website, so it's shiokmeats.com, uh, S-H-I-O-K-M-E-A-T-S.com. Um, we are putting up an FAQ page soon, so that should have a lot of the basic questions, common questions that we get a lot, like, you know, is it dangerous? Is it drunk yeah. in meat? What is it actually? And all of that. So we are putting that up. But basic information is there on, you know, the infographic, for example, on the greenhouse and the meats uh, in the bioreactor. Uh, what does shiok mean? Shiok actually means delicious or fantastic in Singapore Malay slang. Uh, it's used a lot for clothes and food specifically. So, for example, if I like what you're wearing, I'm like, you look so shiok, <laughs> for example. So that's kind of a slang that we use and hence the name. Um, yeah, so then you'll find information on our team, a lot of links to the press that's covered us, which gives you a lot more insights into what we do and how we do it. Yeah. Yeah, what I what I love about your um, about your the press that you include there is there's videos of the lab, yes. which um, is I haven't seen before for for other companies, and it's really interesting because you can actually get an idea of what the process is, and it it's no longer just something that's far removed. You can really see the liquid and and the actual yes. pieces of the meat growing in the in the liquid. I think for us, consumer transparency and education is so important yeah. for this industry to grow. So each company is doing its own part, you know, in educating the customers. I think what the entire food industry lacks currently is transparency. Yeah, We don't know where our products are from, where it's made, who made it, how it was made. I think that's why consumers are losing faith in big brands mm. and, you know, big meat suppliers and so on. So if you go back to your roots and you know where it comes from and how it's made, who made it, like even the scientist or the manufacturing engineer, put a, put a face, put a name there out there, yeah. you know, that's so important. Then you have a personal connection and you have some sort of a satisfaction. I think it's just human tendency to have that sort of satisfaction when you put that piece of meat or seafood into your mouth. 
yeah. and you're like i know where it is from and i know how it was made and i know what's inside of it um so i think we want to be as transparent as we can uh, i mean a big part of our manufacturing plant at some point maybe not the singaporean one but other plants that we set up is we want to have a part of it open to the public that they can come in and actually view it that's so uh, cool. like you know have schools to have tours you know educational mm-hmm. tours to come in and see maybe not touch and feel because it has to be extremely clean and aseptic but definitely run through the manufacturing facility and see these huge tanks and how we grow the meat and see the final product as well yeah i think that's i think that's so important you're absolutely right i mean it's and it's fun too because people do people pay money to go on like brewery tours or yes. they want to see how the wine is made for instance yes. so, you know I, I would imagine it's the exact same thing for food and yes. Exactly. With um, people love farmers markets and going and actually talking to the farmer because it's the only connection that they have to. Uh, it's, yes. the, it's, it's the closest thing you can get to growing it yourself if you live in a city. So yes, exactly. I mean, it's a simple thing where you know it's a common thing on social media if you've seen. But one of the parents asked their kids where does milk come from, and he said from a from a cardboard box in the supermarket. <laughs> That's literally what he said, but you know at the end of the day it's actually from a cow. So unless yeah. you get the child to a farm and show that, he's not going to know. Yeah, but in exactly. the future it won't be from a cow. <laughs> it will be from a facility that looks like a brewery and you can say that it's actually made from cells or, you know, uh, genetically modified yeast or something yeah. like that. So food is changing but at the same time as long as you're transparent and willing to educate your consumers i think that's the biggest um, you know bet you can place on and as as long as you provide more information to your consumers they are more willing to try different products from your own brand it's a good that's a really good point yeah that's i think that's a really important point that transparency is ultimately it's probably some of the best marketing that you can do right exactly well sandhya thank you so much for your time really appreciate it this is such an interesting conversation i love the work you're doing can't wait to actually uh to see this on the shelves hopefully in the next next five years uh we can get things quickly and what i'm most excited about personally about about the work you're doing is what the oceans will look like after maybe in like 2030 uh yeah Hopefully they're, they'll be clean, beautiful, and healthy. And, and With a lot of animals that we don't have to capture and eat. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah. it'll be so good for, for us and for the planet. So thank you for the yeah. work you're doing and uh, looking forward to, to hearing what happens next. Thank you very much, my pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, give us a five-star rating. And also, please subscribe, whether on your podcast app or on YouTube. And that way you can be the first to know about new episodes. Thank you very much and talk to you soon.